now that actually has had a big impact uh, on uh, on the politics and how actually um, the other kind of questions that are confronted by the dalits and other com- backward communities as well uh, they become always constantly center of discussion during elections so that's one way as far as economy is concerned uh, there was reservations or affirmative action in employment Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Declarations. From the Center of Governance and Human Rights, my name is Mona Gassip. Today, we're going to talk about an extremely important topic. We're looking at Dalit rights in India and the caste system. And we have with us our panelists, Akshita and Dr. Samit Maskar. Dr. Samit Maskar is an associate professor and associate dean at the Jindal School of Government and Public Policy at Jindal Global University. He also holds a research partner position at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Religious and Ethnic Diversity in Germany. Dr. Maskar received his Doctor of Philosophy in Sociology from the University of Oxford and MA and MPhil degrees in Political Science from Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. He has previously held positions at the Center for South Asia at Stanford University, the Center for Modern Indian Studies at the University of Göttingen, Germany, the International Center for Development and Decent Work at Kassel University, Germany. Dr. Musker has been a recipient of the prestigious research award from the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation for conducting his postdoctoral research in Göttingen on the rural urban migration to Mumbai city. His research explores the multi-faced vulnerabilities workers experience at the lower end of India's rising economy. He is currently finalizing his book manuscript on Mumbai's mill workers' responses to joblessness as a result of large-scale industrial closures, their politics for rehabilitation, and how gender, religion, caste, and negative emotions have influenced their laboring choices in post-industrial settings. Dr. Muskar is also exploring the urban experience of single rural labor migrants in Mumbai city. He has published opinion pieces in The Wire, The Print, Hindustan Times, and The Outlook. His academic writings have been published in peer-reviewed journals, edited books, magazines, and working papers. Dr. Muskar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, uh, Muna, and thanks, Akshita, for having me for this podcast. Uh, I am an associate professor at the Jindal School of Government and Public Policy. Um, I am trained in sociology and political science. Uh, I have primarily uh, research on labor issues in Mumbai city. Uh, so that has that remains my core area of research. Um, my initial uh, big project, uh, which is my doctoral project, was about the closure of textile mills uh, and how did it impact the the textile mill workers of Mumbai city and from there i was looking at the questions of displacement also questions of gender caste and religion and the political mobilization for rehabilitation um following that i was more interested in the question of migration and for those who are following indian news they know that there were millions of migrants who were walking back to their villages once the lockdown was announced in the country due to covid uh, so these are my broader areas of research and i also keep an interest in labor history and the history of education in india uh, so this is what yeah i do briefly great thank you so much um and i'm excited to delve into this conversation before we begin i just like to give our listeners a trigger warning 
we will be talking about things such as rape, violence, police brutality, and caste discrimination, so just something to keep in mind. So before we begin, I think it would be really good to give our listeners sort of an overview on the caste system in India. So could you please give us some basic, um, just some basic points of this, um, just so our listeners get a better um, understanding of that? Yeah, I think uh, to put it things like, to put it shortly, um, the caste system is the most central uh, institution or the structure that governs the social, political, economic, spatial and cultural life of individuals in South Asia. And also of those South Asians who have emigrated to Europe, Africa, or the Americas. Now, when we talk of uh, these particular um, social structures, political structures, uh, which are influenced by caste, what we mean by that, that is that caste as a system assigns uh, unequal rights to individuals. Uh, and that's how, that is the, one of the best ways probably to understand it uh, is that it gives the, the maximum number of rights to those who are at the top and it gives very little or absolutely no rights to those who are at the bottom. And this particular assignment of the rights whereby those who are at the top, the Brahmins who are at the top, who are the priestly castes, then following by the Brahmins, you have the warrior castes, then you have the trading castes, and then you have the serving castes, and Outside the caste, but below the caste system, are the untouchables. And they are the ones with absolutely no rights. Now, this is the way um, caste really operates. And this particular assignment of rights then affects your economic choices, your social relations, your political uh, representation, and your cultural representation, and the kind of space that you can occupy. So just to give a very you know, brief introduction, about let's say economic rights. Now, what the, how does it operate in economy? It simply means that those who are at the top have the most flexibility to do whatever kind of occupation they want. And they have massive flexibility. As you come down the caste hierarchy, Dalits do not really have that much of rights. And because of the caste system, they are then pushed into those occupations which involve heavy manual labor, which are considered as dirty and polluting, more sanitation work, so all these kinds of works which, um, which are considered within in the Indian context, uh, there is an interesting um, you know, uh, idea of pollution that is attached to work. So all those workers who do leather work, those who do sanitation work, so these are all considered as polluting work. This is not to suggest that you know, across the world, you have people who do leather work, who do sanitation work. But in the Indian context, caste has actually made uh, that particular work as polluting because of untouchability. Now put it simply, what is untouchability? That all those four castes, if they touch the untouchable, they become polluted. So all the occupations which the untouchables do, the Dalits do, they are polluting occupations. So this is the way the system works. Now, if the Dalits want to move to different occupations, there are barriers that are put in front of them. And this is, to put it in a simple language, labor market discrimination. That even though when you have all the skills and knowledge, you will not be allowed to enter those occupations through various means. Either if you're doing business, nobody will come and visit your business. Uh, but they will also use the influence to make sure that the police action is done against them so that they don't perform. Sometimes even violent uh, means are used. So these are the ways uh, in the way economic structure works. Okay? Now, similarly with social structures. So as far as social relations are concerned, 
if a if a male dalit actually uh, falls in love with an upper caste woman uh, there are cases of what is known as honor killing so both uh, in sometimes in in the cases both uh, you know the uh, uh, both the couple is actually killed and this is pretty much a common occurrence across india so if you even if you google this honor killing india you will come across some cases every week uh, so that's as far as social relations so also like even the most basic thing uh, as having social relations as having personal relationship that has a big impact um likewise spatial that you like you know you have the spatial segregation in the west uh, where you know blacks are not really allowed to enter the very solid like typical white only spaces so similarly you have spatial segregation here um cultural life you do not have rights uh, in terms of religious spheres you have absolutely minimal or no rights uh politically um of course we have what is known as affirmative action or reservation uh in the in the elected bodies here uh, but if that was not the case then the, the there is absolutely very little or no chance of political representation so this is the way uh caste actually as a system governs uh, the in life of the you know billions of indians uh, that are there now the problem here is that um since 1950 we adopted a modern constitution with modern rights which considers everybody uh, everyone as equal irrespective of their gender caste religion um they are equal in the eyes of the law now there is a constant conflict between the norms which are governed by the caste system and the norms which are governed by the constitution which are modern in nature they consider everybody and it is this particular conflict that is constantly at play because all those who are privileged caste who are higher caste they always want to assert their high caste privileges uh, because once you uh, you know once you want to once you are expected to follow the constitutional norms you have to give up your privileges and that is something obviously the upper castes um, are not happy about and that is the reason the indian story is about this conflict between the norms which are guided by the caste system and the norms which are guided by the modern constitution i think this gap that you talk about between the constitution and between what the norms are is actually really interesting because we see so many of the issues stem from that right like when i was reading it was like um because of economic liberalization the economic situation of dalits has improved or because of like legal acts like the atrocities prevention act the legal situation of dalits has improved but we don't really see that in society so um what is it about this state machinery or what is it about um like the changes in constitution and um like government uh implementations which is not actually like manifesting in on the ground like why is that the case Uh, yeah i think uh, that's a very good question actually uh, and actually it goes back to this particular conflict that i was talking about that, that there are everyday norms uh, which are governed by the caste uh, system which is the laws of brahmanu which is you know law giver for the hindus and then the law which is governed by the modern constitution now the trouble here is that even though uh, it is constitutionally mandated that this is the practices of untouchability is banned now even we have the prevention of atrocities act and yet what we see that there are people who are part of the police machinery now all these uh, all the upper castes who are very much dominant into the police machinery 
they do not necessarily make sure that they follow the norms rather they follow the caste norms like and i'll come to this point i'll elaborate this point a little the, then the second part here is the judiciary again the judiciary is dominated uh, predominantly by the upper caste men and even when the court cases goes there definitely they are not following the norms which they should have uh, been following uh, so you look at any cases now you've been talking about atrocity cases uh, you know in 2019 interestingly dalit women fight um, you know which is india's largest uh, only dalit women collective they took up 100 cases of caste based atrocities um, in on the dalits uh, particularly women and children uh, and then they also assisted the survivors and they offered free legal aid to them interestingly in these cases what they found was there was a complete system failure in 99% of these cases the police handed over uh, what is known as a mere acknowledgement of non cognizable offense instead of filing a first information report now because the moment you file a first information report they have to follow a particular order of inquiry uh, however in these cases pretty much they were not following it it was only when dalit right activists actually or and lawyers uh, you know organized massive rallies and they exerted a pressure that the first information report was filed and it is only then the criminals were booked under those uh, particular law which is the, the scst atrocity act the scheduled caste and scheduled tribes prevention of atrocities act however again even after doing that the next step was to make sure that there is a charge sheet that is framed and accurate charges are framed against the criminals but even here what we see it is that the police machinery was absolutely complicit with the upper caste criminals the police used some kind of you know some irrelevant charges or you know sections to frame uh, the caste perpetrators on some absolutely weaker charges which allowed them to go scot free i'll just give one example and then of course we can go on further so for example there was this one 13 year old minor dalit girl uh, who was kidnapped and raped in uh, this state of uttar pradesh uh, last year now in this case the criminal should have been booked under the scheduled caste and scheduled tribes prevention of atrocities act as well as the protection of child children and sexual offences act of 2012 now however what did the police do here the police charged the criminal only under the protection of children and sexual offences act now as a result this this became a absolutely weak case uh, of the dalit victim who was otherwise given a greater protection under the scheduled caste and scheduled tribes um, atrocity act so this is one way uh, in which there is this constant conflict between there is a law that is um, you know uh, created by the state Uh, but also we have to understand the trajectory of these laws many of these laws uh, were created not because the government felt that oh now we should really do something about it the laws were created because there has been massive political mobilization by the dalits themselves so untouchability was banned in 1950 but the atrocities act it took nearly 40 years for it to be actually framed it's only 1989 1990 that we actually begin to have atrocity act and it becomes uh, only operational only in mid 1990 so you can imagine like 1950 we are banning untouchability but as far as the prevention of atrocity and uh, that only takes place from 1990s and interestingly there is this word prevention that we must underline here 
that it is to prevent the atrocity. However, this act is only implemented when the, the atrocity is already taken place. So whenever Dalits go and already try to talk to the police that look, we are likely to face a threat from you know this this particular family or this community, the police don't take any action. And it is only when there is a brutal murder that these things are highlighted. But on everyday basis, uh, Dalits actually face massive uh, levels of harassment and they face massive level of violence. Um, most of it actually was unreported. So this is where actually you can see the conflict between the modern law uh, and the, the social norms which are guided by the caste system. And they're constantly at play even at everyday social relations. You go to the state machinery, whether it's police, whether it's judiciary, or whether all kinds of government institutions, they are very much hostile to the Dalit's rights. So speaking of social norms, we see this, this discrimination clearly deeply embedded within people, right? So I'm really thinking about how do you go about reframing that? How do we go about working, working to sort of change this caste system in India? What, is, what do you think the solution is? I mean, it's a, uh, it's a big problem. Okay, and uh, it's uh, that. To, I mean, that said, that doesn't mean that we cannot begin from somewhere. And I think the framers of the Indian Constitution, particularly uh, the person who drafted uh, the Constitution, uh, Dr. B. R. Ambedkar, uh, he played an important role in providing uh, various levels of not just protection but also different ways of actually addressing various problems. So, as I said, caste is not just one social problem; it is also economic. It, it is political, it is spatial, and it is also cultural. So when it comes to political, the one of the better ways that India has dealt with is by providing reservations in parliament and each and every representative institution from local to the national level. Now that actually has had a big impact um, on, uh, on the politics and how actually um, the other kind of questions that are confronted by the Dalits and other com backward communities as well uh, they become always constantly center of discussion during elections. So that's one way. As far as economy is concerned, uh, there was reservations or affirmative action in employment. But we have to understand that this particular reservation only applied to 4% of employment opportunity. And out of the 4%, then you actually have barely 0.5% something beneficiaries. That's it. So, because the rest of it, uh, Indian economy is pretty much a private economy. So the reservation is applied only to the public sector. Now, which has really shrunk down like massively. Um, so that's economy sector. Uh, now, as far as spatial thing is concerned, there were specific policies that were meant to have housing for the Dalits or to have more mixed housing because the upper caste would not actually allow Dalits to have be the neighbors. So there is a like, you know, you need a like a multi-pronged strategy to, uh, to tackle this problem because this is everyday basis. So for example, uh, labor market discrimination, it's absolutely rampant. Like you have you in the United States itself, there was a case for the Cisco company uh, whereby there were two Indian employees. One was Dalit and the other was upper caste. And they were constantly harassing um, the Indian employee, the Dalit Indian. And so that course, that case is still going on. And, you know, I think like uh, everyone, I'm also looking forward to the outcome. 
so i think what is ne needed of obviously is you know the state has to play a very important role because uh, to rely on people's own kind heart that is not going to work and that has not worked uh, because and also there is this constant thing about telling people that oh we should make people more aware of these things i think everybody is aware look at any indian newspapers there is massive matrimonial advertisements whereby the most highly educated people are seeking alliances based on caste so the discussion of on caste is absolutely open it's only in the media that you want to project that indians don't talk about caste but caste is absolutely everywhere and it's very people just ask it very commonly uh, only in the west when indians go i mean I, I have lived in Oxford for five years, more than five. I have lived in Germany for five years, and it's very common there as well. It's just that you don't want to talk about it openly in the West, but in India, it's super common. It's very common to ask people their caste because that is governing their relationships. Um, it's only in the international level that it's an embarrassment uh, to accept that this is a reality. Uh, but as you might know from the you know reports in the United States and the United Kingdom, uh, caste discrimination is now becoming a really big issue. So to yeah to return to your question on what can be done is that the state has to really intervene in each and every aspect, mm -hmm. and that is one of the ways um, one can actually deal with this problem. And whatever norms are there, whatever the you know the modern laws are there as to maintain equality. they have to be implemented because all those who are sitting on those particular chairs whether as a university professor or as a police as a judiciary or any government department or any big public important office they are definitely not uh, following the modern norms they are going back to the caste norms and unless that changes uh, it is a challenging situation No, I think what you're saying is completely valid about how it has to be the government that needs to be implementing changes. And I mean, what you talked about matrimonial columns, like that was shocking for me when I used to read the newspaper growing up. But the thing is, a lot of people have lost faith in the state, right? Especially in states like Uttar Pradesh, where you see repeated um, crimes against Dalits and Dalit women. People have lost faith, and I think there has been after the Hathras rape case last year, there has been a significant turn to like. social media movements and uh dalit activists like you know putting pressure on the government so could you just tell us a bit more about what you think the role of dalit activism is in constituting change whether you think it's an effective means or no so i think it's uh, i think partly i'll have a different view about uh, you know dalit movement particularly on dalit activism uh, and how they view the state the modern state and i think uh, from from dalit standpoint actually the state becomes the only hope because there is no hope from the society and therefore despite all the betrayals that the state does constantly one has to always go back to the state and so because where do you go and mobilize against there who do you pressurize you can only pressurize the state and with all the problems with the current uttar pradesh government Uh, and also other governments actually and uh, if you really want to take an objective view whether it's uh, any particular region when we call state it's uh, in india it's like different states um so any state whether it's governed by left wing right wing centrist or even the main federal government the central government the irrespective of which political ideology rules 
uh, that particular pattern of discrimination of Dalits, that really doesn't change. What changes with the different governments is some better policies uh, in terms of maybe jobs or some kind of better policies. But the everyday relations, even with the best possible ideology, that doesn't really change. Okay. And for that reason, Dalit, the autonomous Dalit movement, whether in terms of sometimes it takes really radical turn, like the Dalit Panthers movement, which was inspired by the Black Panthers. And the 19, 1970s was a very radical movement for the, for the Dalit movement. Uh, I mean, of course, there is the entire 20th century um, is a very important period, beginning from 1920s, uh, beginning with Ambedkar and his uh, role in the Dalit movement. Uh, but if you we look in the recent past, uh, Dalit Panthers played a very crucial role because they were the ones who brought to the notice of the state that look, you know, it's been 30 years and look where are where are we standing still. And I think that really had a big impact uh, because as I was talking about the Dalit Atrocity Act, that came only in the late 80s and only in the 90s you had it operationally. But it was Panthers who actually made a point about these atrocities and somewhere that that contribution led to a lot of changes uh, so in that sense um, as far as Dalits are concerned uh, I think the state remains the only hope and that is the reason they will always go back to the state and therefore there is this constant mobilization to have more legislation a better legislation and that is a sign of having a faith in the law system because you cannot have actually rely on the society because you just cannot uh, trust the society to change. Do you think there has been enough um, pushback from the Indian diaspora or people in the international community who have shed a light on this issue? And what role do you think social media plays in terms of activism and raising awareness on the Dalit's rights movement? Yeah, I think, um, I think there is one we have reached as a country, you know, India has reached at a very interesting juncture. Um, so like 30, 40 years ago, uh, Indians accepted that India is a backward country economically. It's a poor country, it's a developing country. But suddenly with this information technology revolution and this export of this massive, you know, IT engineers that India has done to the world, uh, there is a sense of empowerment and the Indians feel that, you know, they have also emerged economically. That it's no longer this poor, backward country. It's also an important player in the world economy. Now, these are the Indians who feel embarrassed about the Indian realities. They feel embarrassed about the poverty. Look at Slumdog Millionaire, the film. There was a massive backlash from the diaspora community. That they were disowning the film. They were like, no, no, this is not just India. India is also this great. But the fact of the matter is that there are like you know millions of Indians who are below poverty line and who are poor. And so for the Indians abroad, this is an embarrassment and therefore they will always say, no, no, that's not India. Exactly same thing with caste. The moment you talk about caste, they'll say, no, no, caste is not there. Maybe somewhere, some in the rural setting somewhere, uh, but caste actually doesn't matter in India. So that's one of the ways um, Indian uh, diaspora abroad. Now, the second part here is that who is the diaspora? Now, obviously, if you look at the higher level, the highly educated diaspora, historically, they had the advantage of education, the upper caste uh, diaspora. 
and they were the ones to migrate to either united kingdom europe in general or to the to the us or canada so these were the major destinations and they are the ones who definitely don't want to talk about these things now what has happened in the last 15 20 years is that a very tiny minority absolute tiny minority of dalits have been able to take education again in europe and the us and they are the ones uh, also education but also other jobs they have been also able to migrate to do some respectable jobs there and it is they who are now mobilizing and raising that voice now the third point about social media yes so what social media has done is it has brought about very uh, the international connection like one of the most dramatic ways it has not done before it has pretty much cut down the middle person so you don't need to like on twitter if you're if we are following each other we don't need to ask somebody oh whether can you introduce me to someone or some you can just look at what are the hashtags you can follow the you know twitter whatever threads are happening you can talk to people like same thing with facebook like what is happening right now like zoom meeting so all these barriers have been broken but obviously there are challenges you know the twitter will definitely uh, twitter behave differently with um, dalit issues here then they would behave uh, with a particular uh, the george floyd issue in the united states you know so there is massive difference because again the twitter here the officials uh, you know there were some time before the twitter officials were accused of uh, being casteist and because they were yeah so they were not uh, you know approving these handles whatever that blue ticks okay of people who have like thousands of followers but who are openly talking about caste wow. and that became a big that became a big issue and so the way twitter uh, officials in india behave is way different than what they would do in the us so that's definitely the case so of course dalits are making best use of the available opportunities but at the same time uh, there are people who are again in the structures who definitely won't allow the complete freedom to actually use the social media that they would so in our um in our podcast we've spoken about the black lives matter movement we've spoken about strikes and protests as being you know a source for change you wrote an article about the 2018 maharashtra band or strikes could you mm-hmm. tell us about how you believe wh- or whether you believe strikes are effective for social change and social mobilization um and can you talk a little bit more about that situation i mean strikes um i mean they happen because you know you reach a particular tipping point and only then people decide to go on large scale mobilization because like you know all those striking people are also they also have their everyday life they have to go for work they have to earn money so that they can earn like you know eat good food have a basic roof over their heads uh, and also take education so that is the part of everyday life but somehow when it reach a, reaches a tipping point it actually uh, they are left with no option but to do large scale mobilization and these large scale mobilizations are important because then it tells the ruling uh, state the ruling government ruling political party that okay these people have now mobilized and that might have an impact on the election and it is only the fear of losing the power again that is the only reason they might intervene um obviously you know these are like um, it's not always the the way it works 
but there is consistent mobilization um strike obviously is be more associated with factories and job you know that kind of uh, situations um but in general heavy mobilizations and long drawn you know sit ins what we call yeah so that kind of uh, pressure tactics actually helps uh, but there is a constant uh, you have to constantly build up the pressure so for example uh, with dalit atrocity you have to go and constantly mobilize to even get that piece registered now obviously you know for a community which is uh, you know which does not uh, is not prosperous enough it's not economically there are so many opportunities obviously the resources are also limited then how can you constantly mobilize and actually do that so it's a really big challenge and yet you see that there are moments when they definitely display their strength um but sometimes in many cases they are not that relevant electorally so then the, all the ruling parties pretty much as i said from pretty much all political organizations uh, they are not that keen on uh, this dalit issue so you take any political party um so there is a variation between bad and worse pretty much or less bad but we are not talking about good political parties uh, uh, dealing with the issue of dalits strikes have been politically influential but also there's like a lot of vote bank politics in india especially with dalits and lower castes so how is that been used to like the disadvantage of dalits no i think this is the, the i think the concept of vote bank is interesting actually and i would like to definitely spend like a little few seconds on it is that um when we talk of vote bank one is generally looking at those who are socially marginalized uh so people will say dalit vote bank or a muslim vote bank uh but nobody will say that the upper caste vote bank because at the end of the day these are communities if we understand communities as vote banks then every community is a vote bank in that sense and every political party in that sense is actually always appeasing the upper caste community so in the rhetoric what we say whatever they might say in words that's fine but when it they come to power it does not really translate into betterment of that mm-hmm. uh, let me give you one quick example so there is um, so annual we have budgets which the governments announce in february so okay they say okay this is what our potential income will be and this is the money we will spend on the welfare of people or economic development so i think uh, i don't know the exact uh, time frame but some 10 15 years ago maybe uh, there was some separate section that was meant for the dalit budget so the scheduled caste and scheduled uh, scheduled caste and scheduled tribe sub plan what is known as so which means that a particular proportion of money was kept separate for this development of these communities uh, according to the proportion of their population so in some uh, states the proportion of dalits is only 5% so then you keep 5% of the budget for their development but if you look at which state is doing it or the central government you will actually see a massive gap so all those political parties who say that they will do good for dalits are not necessarily even using that particular provision which even this uh, aam aadmi party which is you know which is ruling the state of delhi now uh it is using the majority of the dalit and tribal budget for advertisements for all kinds of advertisements uh and generally for constructing highways now that is not only dalits are going to use the highway <laughs> okay but 
look at any particular state government so none of them actually even follow that basic uh, decency that okay at least we have a promise that 10% of the budget should go for the welfare of that community it does not there is a constant uh, manipulation that happens at all the levels but it's a constant struggle uh, it's not that okay once this is done now we don't have to fight for that issue now that at least that is settled no there is a constant you have to mobilize to see that and this present government here in the you know the present the right wing government they have pretty much slashed down the budget so you will definitely see how the governments behave as far as these um, welfare policies are concerned towards that do you think foreign states should say something do you think the international community should say something i know it's it's a very difficult subject and no one wants to intervene in the sovereignty of another state but do you think the international community places like the un do you think we should be speaking a light on this do we should be shouting out about this because i don't personally i don't hear enough i hear about the caste system you hear about the dalits but you don't hear this sort of prolonged sense of outrage amongst people who are non indian or outside of the indian community or in in the international sphere no obviously i mean any form of uh, support or pressure that could be built up on whether it's the indian government uh, or more importantly um, i feel that if one has to look for more effective mechanisms um i personally feel that of course you know one can also pressurize the government by saying that look this is happening in your country and it's not really nice and you should do something uh, but also there are private companies you know uh they are hiring people like twitter is opening office in india facebook has an office in india and so many american companies european companies they have a big stake in system mm-hmm. and they could definitely so if the international community one thing i feel they can do effectively is to lobby with these particular companies mm-hmm. uh so that actually they can provide some spaces uh, because see un we all know that un with all the good intentions they do not have power to implement anything they can these are mere recommendations they can give and the indian government can say yeah that's an internal matter <laughs> and i think uh, maybe international as a international community obviously it's important that they express their solidarities with um, the kind of atrocities that happened um, but as i said atrocity is one form which is extremely gruesome but there is like wide ranging practices of discrimination and exclusion that happens on everyday basis from absolutely poor to we don't quote like well off dalits to the rich dalits they all face discrimination at various levels and that is something that also needs to be highlighted because um, there is like you go to the school you will have discrimination inside the school you go to some public places that is discrimination so not even one space that is left where you can don't see this particular prejudice that is at play so international community i personally uh, feel that uh, they can definitely lobby with the big companies for sure because this is what they can definitely work with um governments don't listen around the world look at myanmar they have a military regime for forever and uh, i'm not dismissing the international community but i'm saying that um, international community can put their energy in spaces where definitely they can be more effective this is what i think. i mean that makes sense because even with the farmers protest right now india has just dismissed everything as this is an internal matter so it's definitely a pattern that we see so i think that's honestly a great solution that i never thought of 
Um, but you mentioned a bit about like school systems and stuff. And I think we could just talk a bit about this because this is where your expertise lies also. Like what does casteism look like in education? Because education was supposed to be the tool that empowered backward classes. So how has that been happening in universities and schools? Uh, see, schools, I mean, I mean, see, as I said, discrimination is there. Uh, the teachers who are there, they are prejudiced. So these things are at play at various levels. Um, historically speaking, uh, if you go back the, to the caste norms, uh, women across caste were not supposed to take education. So from the top to the bottom, none of the women, obviously all the untouchables and the, and the backward castes, what we know as uh, on the fourth level who are on the caste. So they were not supposed to take education. And there were violent measures that were taken um, to not allow them to take education. And this is what I have also spoken about in another podcast uh, about schooling. And it is only in the mid 19th century and slightly before when the Christian missionaries come to, uh, come to India, they are the ones they play a big role in democratizing education. Of course, their agenda is very different why they want to educate, but that's a different story. Uh, but they are the ones, then there are uh, anti-caste movements. They are the ones who actually take efforts to educate girls from all castes. Uh, and they are the ones who for, for the first time really open the doors for education. Uh, then there is the, the British colonial state, the military. They provide education to all the excluded group. Now, obviously what has happened here is the discrimination continues pretty much. Um, but then there is historical advantage and disadvantage. So obviously all the high caste groups who have been taking education, now they have their whatever, 12th generation being going to the school. With Dalits, uh, it's the second generation, maybe third, but otherwise it's always the first generation pretty much that is still. So we still hear stories about first generation going to school and colleges. So that is a big gap that is taking place. Uh, we also have really spoiled the quality of public education now. So I remember my parents going to the public schools. Uh, you know, I, I went to a, like a kind of semi-funded uh, public school, uh, but it was mostly private, but funded by the state. But now things have changed again. Now it is more privatization and commercialization of education. So again, Dalits who are economically largely, um, you know, on the bracket of lower runs, they are being left out of better quality education. Uh, now once, and or even those who go inside the schools, especially the public schools or universities, they face massive uh, discrimination. And uh, for all those, you know, I mean, I don't know how internationally, uh, it was a little bit in the news when Rohit Vemula, the PhD student who was forced to commit suicide. And, and um, that pretty much highlighted, um, you know, the kind of discrimination that Dalit students face inside the university campuses. And these are all the elite institutions. Um, these are institutions who teach social sciences, they talk about discrimination, they talk about exclusion. And uh, this is where the life of Dalit students is. And it is only now when the number has grown that we are talking about discrimination. In the last, particularly late 90s onwards, especially from 2006 onwards, uh, the proportion of Dalits, uh, backward castes and women have really grown uh, inside the university. And because of this change in demography of caste on the campus, now we are talking about it. Um, and they have found a voice. They think that, okay, now they can really mobilize and talk about these things. Uh, but earlier that was really difficult and it was very much challenging. But 
uh, as far as discrimination consists, uh, you know, concerns, it is very much there in all parts. Um, this is not to say that Dalits um, are not taking education. They are taking education somehow with all the kind of trauma that goes on in their everyday life. They are also able to successfully complete their education. But obviously, nobody likes to have a trauma full of their student life, especially with us experience. Um, so interesting that you mentioned universities. So is this discrimination also quite pervasive amongst younger generations? Or has it is it getting sort of progressively better as newer generations sort of learn more about it and are more open-minded? Um, maybe there are more uh, friendships that are happening. Uh, but at the same time, um, it is not bringing change into the larger structure. So, so the, old, the big change that we can see is that people are talking about it. At least since the last four or five years, uh, maybe social media, but also this whole younger generation who has gone to the universities, uh, into the all elite institutions. Uh, so their particular mobilization had brought big time attention to this issue of caste discrimination. Uh, so my observation is that from 2006, seven or eight onwards, you have a change in the demography of campuses. So you have more upper caste students interacting with Dalit students, tribal students, other backward caste students, which was not the case earlier. So there is also chances of having more possibilities to create friendship across castes where they can actually understand. Um, but that hasn't really brought out a major change into the way you know caste really operates in everyday social, economic, and political life. Um, so that has not increased economic opportunities for Dalits, let's say, for it. Mm -hmm. So if we want to talk about change, um, political representation, that is not increasing. Um, like special discrimination. So you Dalits still can't go and buy a flat in the area, uh, which is, um, you know, which is predominantly upper caste. Uh, they have to either hide their caste, but if somebody finds out, again, it's a big trouble. So... Uh, so I, I don't see a big change happening at that level. Um, it's a very promising change whereby people are talking about it. That, okay, there is inequality now. Caste really is, is the problem, um, which was not the case earlier, actually. So you, even the university spaces uh, did not really talk about these. Uh, these spaces did not really discuss caste terms of distribution of resources. Uh, that I'm not really uh, yeah, very sure about. I think that makes sense because uh, a lot of like caste issues that you see are very, very structural. So even in universities, sure, there is some amount of like bullying and peer pressure, but a lot of it is like discrimination from professors, withholding of scholarships, things that make it very structurally difficult for Dalits and backward classes to continue attending universities and very high like school dropouts, dropout rates as well, right? Yeah, and also with universities, it's a little risk for even to speak about your own discrimination, especially when it comes to research kind of uh, spaces. So your supervisor, uh, as we all know, for those who are into the field of research, that your supervisor is boss for a very long time, even when you finish your PhD, you need recommendation letters. Uh, so even when your supervisor is mean, and uh, I was, uh, I studied in India till my master's, I did a master's research degree, MPhil, and uh, then I moved to Oxford for my PhD. But before that, it was very common 
to see in JNU how you know the students were being constantly discriminated. They were harassed by their supervisors, but there was very limited thing they could do because they knew that they have to somehow finish this degree and also ask for recommendation letters for the same people. And therefore, they were not in a position to always confront. So they might actually mobilize. They can also do rallies inside the campuses. They can write about this, but. Uh, the supervisors are also asserting their authority. So they would not write recommendation letters so that they don't necessarily get abroad opportunities. And uh, also there are jobs that are attached to supervisors. So it's a very complicated uh, business. As much as it's ingrained in the political educational system, it's also a very like integral part of Hinduism, right? Like the caste system. And in that, I feel um, a lot of Dalits and communities believe that there's simply no way to, um, to like, amend the caste system with while still being a Hindu follower. So I feel like it's that ingrained into religion, which is a huge part of Indian society as well. I think on that note, obviously, I mean, um, caste is absolutely central to Hinduism. I mean, you cannot uh, think of Hinduism without caste, because um, at the same time that you are a Hindu, you belong to a particular caste. So you cannot be just merely a Hindu. Uh, but um, as we also know uh, from you know, general uh, knowledge or also with sociological literature, anthropological literature, that caste has very much seeped into other religions too. So even Islam uh, is affected by caste. Uh, so there are high caste Muslims, there are backward caste Muslims, there are untouchable Muslims. Likewise, same with Christianity. There are, um, you know, untouchable Christians. There are high caste Christians. Uh, there are uh, Sikhism as well. You have the same thing. And interestingly, um, uh, there are different, uh, sometimes, let's say, churches. So for different churches for Dalits and different churches for upper caste Christians in, in Kerala. Um, you go to London and you have different Gurdwaras, the Sikh holy places. Um, there are different places for Dalit Sikhs and upper caste Sikhs. And that pretty much really, um, and that's why caste becomes really central. So it's, um, of course, the origin goes back to now what we know as Hinduism, and it is absolutely integral to Hinduism. Uh, but caste has managed to also seep into very nicely in other religions too, and it has also structured those relationships. Um, in that only, it is only recent years that um, there are more voices within, let's say, the Muslim community uh, who are talking about uh, this discrimination within the Muslim community. That yes, overall Muslims are marginalized in India. They are these uh, victims of Islamophobia, but also we have a long history of partition and you know, so there are all various kind of other problems. But also those Muslims who suffer within their community on the basis of caste, they have been very much vocal. And so have been the Christian community. So I think when we talk of caste, I think of course, you know, one obviously goes back to Hinduism, the laws of Manu and other kind of Hindu religious texts, uh, which very much it is the case. And one has to go back to those texts to understand uh, what exactly people are doing. Um, but at the same time, one has to also remember that even though Islam, Christianity, they do not officially um, talk about caste and that there should be caste, uh, it has really seeped into the practices 
and practices is something that we should be also talking about. Uh, so that way, we actually, when we talk of the interaction between religion and caste, uh, one has to remember that caste actually has steeped into all kinds of religions that are there in the South Asian continent. Um, Dr. Sumit, just to wrap up our discussion, I'd kind of like to ask you what tools or what resources you think our listeners could do to sort of get involved in the movement, raise awareness for it, or just, um, you know, someone sitting at home internationally doesn't know much about this, where can they learn more about it? Uh, I would say definitely uh, social media is definitely one, like Twitter, and I told you one handle called the Dalit Women Fight. Uh, and I think that's a very important handle to talk about uh, caste discrimination cases, particularly against Dalit women. Uh, the other is the Ambedkar Caravan. I think these are two uh, popular handles uh, we, one can really look up to as far as the information is concerned. Um, but then there are also all kinds of YouTube um, channels now. And I think YouTube uh, has really democratized. So Dalit Camera uh, used to be doing really good kind of uh, recordings of various issues. They, they, are, they are still very much there, but there are also kind of small initiatives. And I think YouTube, uh, obviously, the, as you, because you are asking about these suggestions, which also indicates that they really haven't really reached uh, much further. So that's one. And also there are interesting films that have come about on cast in the last few years. Uh, I think uh, through international film festivals, maybe through documentary films. Uh, so there are different ways maybe um, that can be connected. And all these people are now very much active on social media. And I think uh, all those people who are Dalits themselves and those who have experienced these kind of issues, uh, either they are artists, they are rappers, uh, and they are all over on social media. So I think uh, it would be nice if uh, several of these people are um, you know, given this opportunity to talk to the wider audience. And also to exchange uh, knowledge. So one can also discuss racism and caste together uh, or some other kind of um, ethnicity issues of let's say the Mexican um, you know, uh, community who faces different kinds of problems. So that of course can be a dialogue so that they understand that there are certain kind of similarities. So one similarity that we uh, all of course talk about uh, is the issue of blacks, uh, but also in the last few years, we have been also talking about the Romas in Europe and how there are similarities in the way uh, Romas also face uh, systemic exclusion. So maybe this is the way, um, I, you know, one can really talk about because somehow otherwise this uh, caste becomes such a big word that you just can't uncode it. Mm -hmm. And you think that there is some so complex thing that we just don't understand. But if you look at all these structures of oppression, whether it's racial structure or it's a structure or ethnicity, religion or caste, um, the effects are similar in a way. They exclude people from schools, they exclude people from housing, there is segregated housing, there is violence against these groups. Um, and so there are some similar, there, is, there are strong similarities. I mean, the way these structures operate is of course different. And, um, they have survived with all kinds of modernization, information technology. They constantly rework themselves um, in, in, a more, in the most creative ways. Of course, for not for the betterment of the society, but they are very creative. And I think uh, that is something uh, 
uh, Muna, we could definitely look forward whereby people from different um, continents uh, who have been working on different issues, if they could be in dialogue, um, that would def uh, you know, definitely put caste in the international context. Dr. Samit Maskar, thank you so much for joining us today for what has been an insightful conversation. And a big thank you to our panelist, Akshita, as well. You can find all of the resources we've spoken about today on our website, www.declarationspod.com. Please also check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. A big thank you as well to our sound editor, Max Parnell. That's all for today. My name is Mona Gassim from the Center of Governance and Human Rights. This was Declaration.